Welcome to the last reading in the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading series. This event is sponsored by the University of Alberta Press. My name is Anne Sorby and I'm a Calgary writer and editor. I'd like to begin by recognizing that as an immigrant and settler in Calgary, I'm proud to acknowledge the gifts of living and working on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, of the Siksika, Kainai, and Bikini, of the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, Bearspaw, Chiniki, and Wesley First Nations, and of the Metis Nation, Region 3. Today, it's my honor to speak with poet and editor, Dr. Micheline Mailer. Dr. Mailer was Calgary's Poet Laureate from 2016 to 2018. Her latest poetry collection is The Bad Wife and Little Wild Heart, another of her collections from the University of Alberta Press, was long listed for both the Pat Lowther and Raymond Souster Awards. She recently won the Lois Hole Award for Editorial Excellence in Alberta. Dr. Mailer teaches creative writing at Mount Royal University, and her work has been recently translated into Farsi. Welcome, everybody, and welcome, Micheline. It's so great to see you. Hi, everyone. Nice to meet you here on, on YouTube. I can't see you, but I know you're out there. Thank you for being here tonight. Micheline, would you like to start this session off um, by reading for us from The Bad Wife? Sure. Tonight, I'm going to open up our reading with the long poem, the beginning of the long poem. It's titled Omen Calla Lilies, and it is several pages long, and I'll just read a little while and warm us all up, and then we'll dive into the questions. <clears throat> Omen, Calla Lilies. And I should have known having seen them in grandma's wedding photo, the catastrophe of tradition repeating. I should have known, made other arrangements for my own bouquet when I ordered the water, glass, and paper. I should have ordered acorns, arbutus, and cactus. The only do I love, oh. I should have paid attention to my own singing, my own car karaoke wisdom. And if you don't love me now, you will never love me again. And I tried. I took you to the restaurant with the open fire kitchen and the smoking meat. I sat you at the hot seat bar and I said, I need this. I need this, a list. No, no, I know I was specific, I'm sure of it. I tried to be a good communicator. I said, I need you to love me. And you said, like Popeye, I am what I am. You said, no, I asked you to love me and you said, no. You didn't say it with one syllable, you took many more pantomimed when necessary, acted it out one complacency at a time. I couldn't imagine Stevie Nicks fucking Popeye, so I ordered more champagne. 
What else could be done? We all get trapped in our own habits, don't we? My habit was no trap this time. I watched tiny glass bubbles float back up to space and stardust. None of these details matter. Don't we, in our own habits, get trapped? Sometimes such small rearrangements make all the difference or could have. The world changed there at that dinner. The world shifted when you said, either you love me or you don't. And I heard out loud in my head, I guess I don't. But it all started earlier in Misty Lake in July. I asked for it. I looked up to the sky and said, make it different. And I meant it all, not knowing how much all really meant. The holidays, their flowered traditions and home addresses, home changed too. The habits, the anger, the washed out, tepid, infrequent lovemaking, the kitchen knives, the front yard swing, things I'll never see again because I did not know what this life would ask of me after that dinner because loving me was what you should have wanted what you should have been capable of, because I did not know what I could give or take. What happened to the photos I took of the children? Where did you take them? To your new, emptier home? The children, the photo on the bookshelf dusted with expectations, my strange, tiny thoughts, all those leftover details, me with just my clothes, before you rekeyed all of the locks so you could help me feel the thin fabric of sudden exile. And it rippled out from that last October. The man, I think his name was Omen. Owen, you corrected me time and time again. Omen across the street sold his house and towed his car. Remember, none of these details matter. It isn't who we are, but the wild rabbits knew what omen meant. They ran crazy with the change surging in their blood, bleaching out their own fur with the stress of their own thrumming pulse, jacking their feet under the chilled day sky. I have shown myself what I am capable of. Call it the snow globe year. The day I cracked the big glass ball with all the people inside, all my people, even the ones we forged out of your sperm and my eggs, they fell in with all the shards, glass and polyester snow dust. Look at the children, squiggly, injured, amid the dangerous inventory of smashed ideals. I shouldn't have been toying with those spells on the sabbats, all those implications, all that black magic in the powerful blood I carry. Those whispered words were bound for chancy outcomes. Will your new woman take you out, full moon, full frontal, to dance naked around a fire like I did? What does it matter? These are just details. I guess you know now I wasn't fucking around when I said you needed to protect me from that guy at the party who wanted to take me home, 
while you laughed in the corner. Remember those old fuse boxes with the switches flipped? Click, the sudden dark, click. No, the twisting of the wrong key and the wrong lock, click. Say goodbye to the electric panel of my heart. Tonight there was a coyote in the yard. I wonder, was it the first friend you kept in the divorce? All those old chums divided themselves along his and her pack lines. Was she creeping by the trembling aspen and the wicker chairs? Was she listening? Did she hear I slept with another man? Did she hear the locksmith pinned me out bolt by bolt? My own children would not left, let me into my left home. They were bouncers. They were party to my lockout. Did the coyote hear the fuse box with her ears pressed to the walls? Click, click, click. Does it matter? Coyote will be the first to tell you you can do better. I hope you believe her, and I hope she is right. But I won't be a standard part replacement, will I? No easy cork in the bottle. No matter how many times I've replayed the damage that came out of my mouth, how many times have you reheard it? I am in your head forever. Know that as you are in mine. I take thee in ever after haunting. I do. Once we took the children skiing and handed peanuts to whiskey jacks. We had such specific luck but not enough sex to keep us glued. Wasn't it enough to keep the best parts, all the other parts? What the fuck is wrong with me? What the fuck is wrong with you? We are just romantic fools afoot on stardust and tap dancing shoes. Click, click, click. In the room behind the wall, there is a thing that cannot be described by language, a thing that exists only in the feel of my body. Is this love, this wakeful trembling, this flood of gratitude, this canine rage? I have shown myself what I am capable of. I've got such slippery hands. No one should trust me to carry anything, really, especially people and their blown glass hearts, their snow globe mansions. In the morning, petals bloom out of my eyes and a story falls into daylight. That time at the Grand Canyon when the children in their raincoats and me carrying my anemia that time at the St. Stephen's Scree, those midnight feedings, the scotched rubbed gums of our daughter, name things that are pink. Your knee scar from the car, my untouched nipple, that damn street lamp with, was such a good companion all those beautiful years. How I loved you. Do you hear that? It was not a waste. May grandmother's silver wedding service blind you with memories. May you choke on the teacups. Grandfather's second wife kept all the spoons. I hope you enjoy the knives and forks, that wonky setting, 
In my paper art frame, my great-grandmother's blanket made from her cut-up dresses, the whatever the fuck I can't remember to catalog for the lawyers, my handmade plates, my scent, my favorite mug, a gift from the burlesque troupe, my Montana fossils, my sense of humor, my white chairs, what does it matter, what, my dog, my children, my, 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 nothing of court values. Photos of my children growing up. You claim them lost on your rickety hard drive. All, all the photos of my children growing up are yours and the ethers. My children's children's children, well, those are yours too. What will you do with all that stuff? All those trinkets and treasures of my life, all that dead freight. Just keep it together, keep it together. It's all a matter of not knowing, is it? The strength of a flower is all water and cells. Science doesn't matter when you say, indefinitely beautiful. Romance doesn't need hypothesis and proof. Details don't matter. I suppose I would have been fine staying, but that's different than flourishing. Keep on keeping on, keep on swimming, keep on trucking, keep on keeping it together. And that's the trick, isn't it? Keeping it together. I've got such slippery hands. I'll stop there. There's more, but I'll stop there. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Micheline. Mm -hmm. I find. I find the book entirely provocative. Shelley said that poetry is a mirror, which makes beautiful that which is distorted. And in The Bad Wife, your words, which are so striking, reflect not only that which is often distorted, whether it's person, identity, um, or familial situations, right? But that which is also dark and difficult. Will you talk about writing the dark and the difficult and about how your journey brought you to the poems in The Bad Wife? Oh, sure. I, I think that there's probably two, two things that confluence in terms of, of values when it comes to poetry. When you think about all of poetics and you think about all of the things that could be said, I think that it is the best kind of poem when I have been startled awake by some sort of epiphany. And to startle oneself awake, you can, you can think about the Robert Frost quote, for example, where he says, no tears for the writer, no tears for the reader. And so maybe you have to go there. Maybe you have to go to those dark places to pull out the poems that matter. And um, I would certainly say that that was advice from one of my mentors called the, a, a young man named Patrick Lane. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> and um, it certainly was advice from my father. My father always used to say, imagine that bad news is a train. Either you can face the train or you can turn around and let the train hit you in the back. So he used to say, face the train. So I think that this book is about facing the train. 
Right. So, in it, so clearly it enters the territory of emotion, right? Clearly, yeah. What was your vision for the book when you first started writing it? And did you find that that changed along the way? Were there any surprises? Yes, I didn't know this was a book. What happened was I thought I was writing a poem and I thought I was going to be done one evening when I was writing the poem. And uh, what happened was the poem came and told me it wasn't finished talking. And then all of a sudden I had this uh, collection of work that then had to be shaped and, and you know, double checked because, you know, when one is writing confessional work and one is writing work that is dark and deep and, and um, an eruption of, of that emotion, you do have to double check and make sure, does this have an opening for the reader? Because ultimately, you know, confessional work can be very um, self-indulgent. So, so one has to make sure once that that primary emotion is on the page that there's room for the reader to get in and I think that that's a really big that's a really big element in in confessional work that has to be considered and when you think of the the largest and most popular poems of the confessionals you will find that you are in it just as much as the poet is in it so yeah, I had to do that work afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what about Patrick Lane? What would he have uh, said to you think about um, entering this territory of the emotion and, and getting deeply into the confessional? Well, I don't know if you've ever read Patrick Lane's work, but I think that all of his work is confessional. <laughs> and I think that all of his work is an expression of who he is. And he's always talking about about being brave and about facing facing the thing that scares you. I mean, some of his work, like in in his novel, where he talks about finding the baby in the trash, like that, you, it's it's impossible to shape the image from your head once you've seen it. But I think that he would be very much in favor of going into those into the places that are most dark and most difficult for the sake of telling the truth in a poetic way. And um, I, I also think that almost all poetry, like any time there's a poem on the page, it does have to do with the narrator, unless that narrator is completely occupying a, a dramatic voice, which is also possible. But, you know, sometimes there's a, such a huge overlap that you can't separate the poet from, from the work. And oftentimes that's the best kind of stuff. So, um, I think that 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 impulse to say what we have to say, even if it's not pretty, is is a really great thing, a great favor that you can do for your poetry. Right. So, what were the things in the book that the that were the darkest or the toughest to bring to the page? Oh, admitting that the marriage broke up because of my infidelity. It was definitely the hardest thing to admit. Mm -hmm. definitely and um but yeah, i'm gravely sorry for harming my husband in that way my ex-husband in that way gravely sorry and it was it's very very difficult to look at 
because you also have to acknowledge all of the reasons that you justified and all of the reasons why and all of the reasons that were internal and external and <laughs> it's uh, yeah it's a shortcut to therapy <laughs> Well, all of that does come to play in story. And here we are talking about a poetry collection, which has a very strong narrative quality. So as both a poet and an editor, um, I think you've already in part answered this, but how important is story in the, say, in the books you edit and in your own work? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say that the narrative arc in a poetry book is, if not primary importance, it's secondary importance. I think that there, it's incredibly important. And all you have to do, I would, I would challenge anyone to do this, go to your local library and take out 100 poetry books and read them within a month. And then see which ones you remember after a month. And it's going to be the ones with the narrative arc because they told you a story. And story is deeply embedded in who we are. It's part of our humanity. You know, there's some evolutionary biologists who believe that storytelling itself contributed to us um, having, having fitness enough to, to survive. And I think the story is so deeply, deeply embedded in who we are as human beings that it's a primary importance, if not secondary importance, because sometimes the poetics will be of primary importance and the narrative arc will be of secondary importance, but they are so closely linked and so closely married that, that at all times that should be in the in the forefront of the editor's mind maybe not in the poet's mind as they're writing it because i think that poetry is also not very predictable for the author you know it tends to be one of those things like no one sits well almost no one i'm not gonna say no one but almost no one sits down and says i'm going to write a book now you know most poets are like well i wrote this poem and then i wrote this other poem and maybe they go together and you know there, there's a, a lot of um casting about that goes along for the most part so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also I mean there's um you know there's people out there who don't really want to get into sort of the territory of emotion when we talk about writing in general never mind poetry or things like identity and self but uh, recent, recently I heard another poet it was Rosemary Griebel asking how important are claiming and reclaiming identity and creativity in our work? Hmm. I'm not sure what she means by identity, so I'm not 100% sure mm -hmm. how to approach that question, mm -hmm. other than within, within books, I would say that it is I think that it's very important for the book to have a really strong spine, a really deep understanding. The book has to understand itself so that it holds together and so that it, it makes sense to itself. Mm -hmm. I think that that like over the long period of time when poets write, I think that what can also happen is that poets can 
change the spine of the book between books. Mm-hmm. And it excites me the most when I see poets developing in that way. Like if I get one kind of book from a poet and then the, their next book is a very different book, I'm very excited to see that the poet has altered that, that sense of, of the spine of the book or altered their, um, perhaps what they're capable of in terms of craft or expression. That is very exciting to me. I think that what, what can happen is that poets can end up writing the same kind of book over and over and over again. And I find that less exciting as, as like in, in terms of a career poet, let's say. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what Rosemary meant by um, approaching identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if she were here, I'd definitely clarify with her and say exactly <laughs> meant, but really? she's not here, so <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about other things that influence the shape of a poetry collection. So you mentioned the spine, obviously, you know, people can also connect that to the, the physical book itself. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the image on the cover of The Bad Wife. Right. So we're talking about the painting, yeah, Dinner by Anna Wyant. It definitely blends um, the figurative with the contemporary, um, which is, I understand, um, um, you know, something that's important for the focus of her work. Um, and it's always interesting to me how the arts complement and support each other. Mm-hmm. So here, of course, is the figure of a woman, her hair is shining, fanned out across the table, her face is hidden completely. So what did you feel about, mm-hmm. what did you feel when you first saw that image and how did you hope um, did you did you think uh, right away about using it in your book for your book? I did. As I said, this book didn't start off being a book. It just started off being one poem, as, as can happen. But what happened when I read written that one poem and I was sure about that one poem? You know, I, I was familiar with Anna's work because I met her at the Bounce Center at some event and and um, her mother and my husband are friends and, and we hung out all evening and she's just the most wonderful person. Um, Anna Wyant is now, you know, she lives in New York and she's a full-time painter and she's one of the up and coming painters under 30 that lives in New York that's, that's painting right now in oils. And, you know, I just happened to be lucky enough to be there at the right time and I asked Anna if I could use the, the, the image on my book and she just kind of went, sure, whatever. And again, like totally informal, totally unusual, just, just one of those serendipitous situations, but definitely. And I think that, you know, as a, as a side testament, I think that it can, like the, the strength of an image can help pull a poet through as well. Like if they've got, and, and there were times when I looked at Anna's work and I thought, yes, that is the feeling. That is the feeling, that is the spine, and that is that is the emotion of the book. Is just this, oh, mm. okay. Just the just the 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 falling forward and giving up. 
but then, you know, there were other interesting things that went on. Like I have one friend in Vancouver who shall remain nameless, but knows darn well who he is, who said he, he sent me a very coy message on the side in Facebook. And he said, Micheline, you have a snatch on your cover. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, it, it, it also added to the feminist sort of um, the claiming, claiming of, of the space, because I think that there's, there's definitely some responsibility taking that happens within the book as well. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Are you going to share um, which was that one, that first one poem? Which was the first poem? Yeah. The, the first poem that I wrote in the whole collection was called Inclement Weather. Did you want me to read that one? I'd love it. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Got some time. Inclement Weather. Have you seen the sky turn on a rocky cliff face? Cobalt silk morph into dappled gray hide. Seen the sky muddle beyond metaphor. Remember, I loved you spectacularly. From the time I spied you mowing the lawn in your underwear to another time your body slipped in the air, turned and sprung off the edge of our vacation boat, back flips for the children's circus tricks turns of impatience and longing while hours sat peacefully across inhabited rooms. CBC and the speakers droning the news almost the same as yesterday. So samey is the turning of the world, so full of human nature churning. Those days smutched to years spread soft and green grass. Let's not forget none of it was a waste. Let's not forget the mercury moodiness of the weather over the slim sliced schist jammed sidelong into the continent. Our marriage was here for the millennia of our lives. It too has a drift, a motion told in geologic time, a fault line. I have felt the color of your mood in my breast. The way you despise me now tramples down the highway, punches hooves into my chest. But I have not forgotten your beauty or the lilies you found at Safeway late on Mother's Day, the sun-bleached glacial tint of your eyes, the talks we hushed in the bathroom, private and loving, while our children slept in night-dimmed rooms, hallways away, safe then from me, from us. There is much to mourn and maybe even more to say, but now silence needs the length of time, the forge of memory. And I have not forgotten the way the clouds here scud off mountaintops and shift a whole sky, the same way tides scramble oceans. You will never be wrong in our children's DNA. We will have all of time to sit in those cells patiently together, all the stories of our past still in synchronicity. Let those remembrances be balm enough for what has become of our bombed out home, empty of my things and the rhythms we kept. Tell your son you loved me. Keep once inside. All the sky is still in motion. Do you see the weather shift? Even now, 
thunderheads might break into blue. Thanks, thanks for doing that. So here we are at the words on the page. Um, and when I think about your work and clearly as we all hear it, there's, there are a certain amount of truths in that language, in that language that's rife with compassionate cadence. It offers so many great lines. Um, on your page 33, eyes that molt lavender. And later on, a thing that exists only in the feel of a body. Um, and what you started out with from page 54, I think, in the morning petals blossom out of my eyes and a story falls into daylight. Every one of these lines provokes a powerful visceral image, sometimes with a sharp edge, other times with a soft underbelly of feeling. Um, sort of a balance that, get, that is struck there. How important is that balance to you? Oh, it's incredibly important. I think that poetry must have that sort of beautiful tension within it. It must, it must do more than one channel of emotion, right? It has to, it has to be flipping around the horn. Like you got the remote control of emotions out here, like bam, 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 bam. And I think that that's always been my favorite kind of poetry. The poetry that, that startles you into awareness and startles you out of the expected. That's the job of poetry. The poetry is, the, it's supposed to resist the cliche because, you know, what, what we're writing about is quite common. We have a common human experience and it's hurting or it's joy or it's reverence or it's sorrow or it's elegiac. And it can be very common because the emotion is common. The human experience is common. But a poet's job is to say it in a way that startles the reader out of complacency. And so with that, I think that that does require a, a large span of emotions, a large understanding of emotions. And not just that, but the cadence and, and the, the metaphors have to strike the reader in the heart somehow mm. it's it's got to wake them up because otherwise what's the point of all of this really i mean if every poetry book was just a series of cliche and gosh darn you can find that um you can you know i wouldn't feel excited about reading it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for sure crouch robert crouch once said to me story begins where the narrative world comes undone. <laughs> and uh, I think for all of us, every creative, right? Um, story, image, uh, the visual artists, you know, they all begin where something comes undone. And um, that's the thing I think you're saying, we have to give our readers that sort of thing to hang on to. So where your poems, where do poems or a poetry collection begin? And how do you decide when you've got that raw material, which form you might choose for one piece or another? Hmm. Well, 
To quote Juan Felipe Herrera, the American poet, he says, the poem will tell you how to write it. I think that sometimes you can't tell until you start telling, if that makes any sense. You can't tell what's going to arrive and you just have to be there for the arrival, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Seamus Heaney calls that keeping your stations open. <laughs> he says, he says, don't take a real job because you've got to keep your receiving stations open. And so with the poem, you have to keep your receiving stations open. And I don't recall at all starting any one of these poems with the idea that this is what it was going to look like and this is what it was going to finish like and this is what it was going to, to be. I, di I, didn't, I didn't dictate that with, with any of them. And, you know, I certainly could not have expected what arrived. And there's everything from prose poems to haiku to pantoum to villanelle. I think that I, I even did something I did something that I've never even seen before, which was this one, which was the Sudoku poem. Like, <laughs> uh, like I was like, where did this come from? I don't know. So I think that as a poet, you know, poets and writers of all sorts, I don't, I don't necessarily think that you can dictate what, what's going to happen. I think that you just have to keep your receiving stations open and that the poem will teach you how to write it. I do think that there's a little bit of, uh, as Elizabeth Gilbert calls it, divine fairy dust that just comes with the poetry itself. <laughs> you know, does it always come? No, but you know that also when you're sitting at your desk, you're like, well, that's not working. I guess I'll go do the dishes now, <laughs> right? So I think that we all have those moments as well where we, we know we didn't hit it, but anybody that's a writer that's committed to being a writer will have experienced that moment at one point or another where they're just like, damn, I don't know where that came from, but I'm not sure it was just me. <laughs> so. so the collection is obviously sort of a hybrid when we think about it. It's both memoir and, confess and confessional poetry at the same time. Um, so again, as an editor, how do you view hybrid, hybrid poetry? And by that, I mean, is memoir and the confessional as sellable as, say, books focus, focusing on current political or cultural topics? Well, I don't know the answer to that either. I think that poetry books, you know, if you're asking the question about why they sell, I think they sell because A, they touch people, and B, because, because the poets get out there and try to touch people. <laughs> I guess it's not a good idea to be a super introverted poet if you want your, your book to sell. Um, but I, I think that the kind of poetry books that sell are the kinds of poetry books that touch people. That's the key. Because what is it? 3% of readers are poets or 3% of readers read poetry books. It's it's something ridiculously low. So why is it that we would turn there? You know, and, and I think that the answer is because it makes us feel something. Right. And I think that we're willing to, to bring a book home when it makes us feel something. Yeah. 
I think that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. You know, I always think of myself as old fashioned because I want the book to take me somewhere else, you know, out of my own head. So just, mm -hmm. so I'll just ask you one last question. Has the pandemic affected your writing in terms of how you write or where you write? These, you know, these yeah, yeah I, I do think that it has. I think that, um, I think that moving home and being starved of my work colleagues who I had very vibrant relationships with and I think that that was a little bit detrimental to my writing. I, and I think that this book also particularly wrung me out. Like I think that it, it was it was a book that needed to go and live outside. And then there's a, a period that re refreshment needs to happen. Like new things need to occur out externally in order to arrive back on the page and I think I'm finally getting back to it after about a year but I think that the pandemic was extremely um hard on my writing and probably and many other people for that matter yeah. I don't know anybody that feels like their lives improved or that they emerged unscathed <laughs> so well I'm sure we're going to hear we're going to hear and read in the coming years um, a lot about this particular time in our history. Well, as we're reaching um, the conclusion of our time together, I would like to thank you for sharing your work with us tonight. I'd like to thank, again, the Writers Guild of Alberta for offering this online reading series, to the University of Alberta Press for sponsoring, and to all the writers and hosts who have taken part in the series. And of course, very special thanks to you, Micheline, for sharing your work again with us. Um, and thank you for uh, the audience are here, the, who are here. I would like to close by asking Micheline um, to read one more piece and that will conclude the session. Um, this piece is called Sticks and Stones. Okay, thank you. I'd also like to thank you, Anne, for asking really provocative and interesting <laughs> questions because it's not easy to be in your seat either. And I'm humbled by your generous and wise dive into the book. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And this poem is titled Sticks and Stones. I have a secret wilderness I keep inside tight as spider eggs tucked in for the winter and waiting to be far flung, strung then tamped tight as a forest floor. What visions turn to currency? Now the anger is done. I have devastated you like a Wall Street banker on a Saturday bender. We have new traditions now. Nothing looks like it used to. Get over it, stuff in tight any remorse, hang long memories, cinch those unwanted puppies in the killing sack. My shoes are milk thistle kitten heels, almost remorseless and almost vast. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone, and stay safe and be well. Okay. Good night. <laughs>